May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So in this passage from Luke that the midshipman read just a few moments ago, the, the big beef that the Sadducees have with Jesus is about resurrection. And that's a fairly important concept for us Christians, I think. And, and there's a way in which, I mean, the way we read the text, it's, you know, we almost kind of dismiss the Sadducees for their doubt in the resurrection. The Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. But this is, this is a difficult thing. Resurrection is a tricky thing even for those of us who call ourselves Christians. Just as an example, I have, I have three young children, Millie, Sammy, and Danny. And uh, my oldest, Millie, is almost 10 now, but when she was almost five, I think maybe she was just five, Easter several years ago, a few years ago. Um, you know, it was Easter season, so we were talking about resurrection, and in Sunday school she was hearing about resurrection, and we were in the kitchen, uh, my wife Colette and I were in the kitchen with Millie, uh, and Millie turned to Colette and said, did Jesus really raise from the dead? How did he do that? You know, and Colette listened to her patiently and kind of got down close to her and looked her in the eye. And you know, it's a four-year-old, right? It's the first time you get these, you feel like these explanations carry some weight, you gotta do it right. And so she gets, gets down on Millie's level and looks her in the eye and very tenderly, very patiently said to her, Millie, why don't you go talk to daddy? It's tricky stuff, right? Even if we want to dismiss the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are complicated, a complicated uh, group within ancient Judea, and I want to talk more about them. But this is important to us, this concept of resurrection. For us as Christians, not just because it's what's at stake in this lesson, but it's also what's at stake in us when we say that Jesus is raised from the dead. But it's also it's what's at stake on a morning like this, when we remember the dead. We remember the lives of those that have been lost and gone before us. So let me tell you a word about these the Sadducees. It's true that they did not believe in the resurrection, as Scripture tells us, but there were a lot more to them than that. The Sadducees were the elite. The Sadducees ran the temple. The priests and high priests were Sadducees. And this is, this is not unimportant in our story this morning. At the where our lesson takes place in the story of Jesus. Because what has just happened is Palm Sunday. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem triumphantly, and guess what he did first when he got there? He went to the temple and overthrew all the tables of the money changers. He's challenged the economy of temple practice right in front of all these Sadducees who run the temple. And so when they come to him asking this question, it isn't just a sort of interesting academic poser. They're challenging him because they've been challenged. And guess what? In the verses following this, Jesus is going to turn to his disciples and say, all this will be thrown down. This temple will be thrown down. Not one stone will be left upon another. The stakes are high here in this encounter between the Sadducees and Jesus because the charges against Jesus that will be brought will be charges about his blasphemy, 
in front of the Sadducees, what he said about the temple. And the people who conscript Judas into going and betraying Jesus and arresting Jesus will be the priest and the high priest, Sadducees. What sounds like an academic question, imagine there were seven brothers. Actually has immensely high stakes in the life of Jesus and in our question about resurrection. But I am an academic, right? I teach at the Divinity School. And, and if this sounds like an academic question, it's because it is kind of an academic question, right? It's highly speculative and gives the most extreme example to try to test this concept. It's, they're trying to confine Jesus into a corner and make him not have an answer to their question. And honestly, Jesus' answer is not super satisfying for a couple of reasons. It's not, at least at first glance, it's not satisfying because I've pastored a church for 10 years. And in those 10 years, I've several times met with people who were dying and who said to me, despite whatever other fears they might have, who said to me they looked forward to being reunited with a beloved in the beyond. For them to hear Jesus say, there's no marriage in the afterlife. That's not something, that's not like verse of Jesus that I would use in that moment. But it's also sort of puzzling because of the way Jesus finishes, right? He names these dead men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and says to God, they're alive. What does that mean? What does it mean to be alive to God in this way? To understand what Jesus is up to, I think we actually have to look again at this question the Pharisees ask, or at least maybe listen to it in the way that I think Jesus is listening to it. Note how casually these high priests, these men, pass this hypothetical woman from brother to brother. This daughter of Abraham passed from brother to brother. And they will ask anybody they can find to speculate about who she belongs to. Anybody at all. Even the wandering rabble-rouser who just came into their temple and overthrew all the tables, they'll ask him who this woman belongs to. They'll ask anybody. Anybody, that is, except a woman. I think this is what Jesus means when he talks about being, not, being, not giving in marriage, not being given in marriage in the resurrection, I think he's actually pointing back at the Sadducees' question and noting that it presumes that human life and human being could ever be passed back and forth like a commodity. You're asking the wrong question, Jesus says. The answer is actually right in front of you, Jesus says. You are so caught up, you Sadducees, in the arcane theological problems of your own privilege that you have failed to recognize the human being, this woman, this daughter of Abraham, who would be and should be your answer. Who does she belong to? She belongs to God. God is with her. God is for her. And any religion that looks past her for the answers to its questions is asking the wrong question. 
If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive anywhere, Jesus says, they're alive in her. God is God of the living, not of these dead brothers or of the Sadducees' dead questions. No wonder they arrested him. Today in this church, this memorial church, we commemorate the war dead, our war dead, and our benefactors. If God is the God of the living, what does it mean to say that these war dead, these benefactors, are alive to God? What does it mean, what would it mean, to remember the dead well? How are they alive to God? And I think, actually, at least one attempt at an answer might be in the word benefactor itself. Now, I'm not a scholar of Latin. There are probably scholars of Latin in this sanctuary this morning. But the word benefactor comes from the Latin, bene, means good. Factor from facere, which means to make. To make good. Consider the names etched on the wall of this church. How do we make good on the promise of their lives cut short by violence and war? Consider this Jesus who was crucified. How do we make good on the promise of his life cut short by violence? What could that even mean? To make good on the promise of these lives except to pursue among the living the virtues and values for which they gave their lives. We remember them well, not when we recite platitudes about sacrifice or shout empty slogans about freedom and justice while calling them to mind. We remember them well, we remember them best when we pursue freedom and justice in our own world, in and among the living whom they have left behind. To commemorate the dead, to have a good memory, means to make good on their promise among the living. I'm a veteran. I served the United States Navy on a guided missile cruiser in Japan. Japan is the country where my mom was born and raised during the American occupation after World War II. It's also where my dad served in the Navy during the Vietnam conflict. And when I was in Japan in the Navy, I was in charge of a division of about 40 sailors. I'm gonna tell you something that might surprise some of you. Of my 40 sailors, about half of them were not US citizens. They were from the Philippine Islands, or Grenada, or Haiti, or Panama, or other places like Japan that the United States has invaded or occupied over the last 70 years. And these immigrants enlisted in our US Navy to make good on the promise they saw in this country. In this, they were not unlike so many who have come before them, immigrants and the children of immigrants whose names are etched upon the walls of this church and whose names are inscribed upon the war memorials all over this land. These immigrants and these children of immigrants, these war dead, these are the ones whom today we aspire to remember. Meanwhile, in this, our land of the living, we place immigrants and the children of immigrants in cages. And we literally forget to whom they belong. We lose track of who these children belong to. 
I would suggest that we know who they belong to. They belong to God. If we would make good on the promise of our war dead, if we would make good on the promise of Jesus, we had better remember that freedom and justice are not just abstractions that accrue to our memories. God is God of the living. Freedom and justice only arise, and I can't help but interrupt myself here. The word the New Testament translates as resurrection just means to arise. Freedom and justice only arise in the bodies and lives of real people living in our world, here and now, not just in our ideas, not just in our memories. If we Christians would serve the living God, we'd better get to work making good on God's promises to the living.